Xtalks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This life science-focused podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we're discussing Pfizer and Moderna COVID vaccines for children under five and a monkeypox test kit in development. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Xtalks Life Science Podcast. I'm Aisha Rashid, Senior Life Science Journalist at xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Sydney Perlmutter and Vera Kovacevich. Thanks for coming today. I'm going to start us off with a story about monkeypox, uh, specifically about a new monkeypox test kit being developed by leading medical technology company Becton Dickinson, or BD, in partnership with Surtest Biotech. So Surtest Biotech is a biotech company based in Spain, and it has teamed up with BD to develop a molecular diagnostic test for the detection of the monkeypox virus. The companies say the aim of the partnership is to design a diagnostic test that can help advance understanding of the global spread of the disease. So the collaboration between the two companies will involve BD helping develop and also validate Surtest Biotech's Biosure Monkeypox molecular test on BD's BDMAX open system reagent suite. Now, Surtest Biotech specializes in the development and manufacturing of in vitro diagnostic medical devices, and it has expertise in the detection of human diseases. So it's well positioned to develop this new monkeypox uh, diagnostic test. Of course, monkeypox continues to circulate around the world with rising case numbers in different parts of the world. And as of June 23rd, there have been over 3,200 confirmed cases of monkeypox and one death reported to the World Health Organization. The monkeypox virus, as we've talked about on a previous podcast uh, episode, is an orthopox virus that causes the monkeypox infection. And the symptoms of the, the infection are similar to smallpox, but less severe. And because of that, the smallpox vaccine can be used to protect against monkeypox. And according to the World Health Organization, the vaccine is 85% effective against monkeypox infection. Now, in terms of commercially available tests, there are currently none uh, for the det- for the detection of the monkeypox virus. Excuse me, and so this is a big uh, step in terms of and an important one in terms of um, you know a growing need that we are seeing for um, diagnostic tests for detecting the virus. Uh, there are a couple of other companies also developing tests uh, for monkeypox, and this includes Abbott Laboratories, um, uh, as well as Trivitron Healthcare, which is a medical device company based in India. Uh, Roche is also developing a couple of monkeypox te- uh, tests as well, and I'll talk a bit about uh, those later. Going back to BD's uh, test that it is developing, uh, so BD's BDMAX system is a fully integrated automated nucleic acid extraction and real-time PCR platform, which can produce results in less than three hours. Uh, 
and the system can process up to 24 samples across multiple indications. Of course, BD is a longtime leader in in vitro diagnostics, and the company offers an extensive array of tests on its BD Max system, which include uh, healthcare associated infections such as respiratory infections, uh, gastrointestinal infections, as well as women's health diagnostics. Now, BD said in a press release um, for the monkeypox test that it is developing with Surtest that it offers a suite of open system reagents for the BD Max system that enables labs to fully automate and streamline their lab-developed tests. And BD can partner with customers to develop complementary assays on the system. So despite the rising number of monkeypox cases around the world, in a report from the meeting of the International Health Regulations, or IHR Emergency Committee regarding the global monkeypox outbreak, which was held on June the twenty on June twenty third, the committee advised the Director General of the World Health Organization that at present the outbreak does not determine that the event constitutes a public health emergency of international concern, or PHEIC. The PHEIC is the highest alert level that the WHO can issue. So, of course, as I mentioned, despite this, diagnostic testing for monkeypox um, is becoming a greater need as cases of the infection continue to rise and appear in different parts of the world. Uh, Monkeypox is endemic to Central and Western Africa, but it's now circulating in countries outside of these regions uh, for the first time in many cases. So, as I mentioned, uh, there are a handful of other companies developing molecular diagnostic tests for the detection of the monkeypox virus in anticipation of a growing demand for them. And this includes Roche and its subsidiary TIB Mobile, who have developed not one, but three light mix modular virus test kits for the identification of the monkeypox virus. And the test kits use quantitative PCR technology. The first test can detect all orthopox viruses, including smallpox, horsepox, cowpox, as well as monkeypox, while the second kit is specific to the identification of the monkeypox virus. Uh, The third kit is a combination of the other two, and it can identify the presence of orthopox viruses, and specifically can clarify um, or distinguish the monkeypox virus if it's present in the sample. So, um, yeah, although monkeypox doesn't cause severe infection in in the majority of cases, the current outbreak um, nonetheless has led to dozens of hospitalizations, and therefore testing is critical in tracing and following the trajectory of the virus, as well as for the for prevention and treatment. So I wanted to get your thoughts on, um, you know, companies coming in and um, really, you know, trying to develop uh, new diagnostic tests for this new infectious disease that we are contending with. I think COVID really led the way for the speed Mm. at which these diagnostic tests can be developed. Um, And I'm just wondering, you know, since that's half the equation, how 
um, governments are going to handle the distribution of these tests and how yeah. easily accessible they're going to be, how expensive they're going to be, um, and whether the fact that it's not a public health or an international public health emergency is going to play into any of that. So it is great that, um, you know, we're seeing these tests so quickly for something that is, you know, a little bit alarming. Um, but yeah, I just wonder how um, the rollout is going to be. And if we've learned anything from from mm -hmm. COVID testing and, and that whole mess. So <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see like how what they're going to do with with these tests. Yeah, that is such a great point. And, you know, that's what sort of the word is, you know, um, sort of in this arena that COVID has definitely helped um you know, companies prepare for other infectious diseases. So they're pretty well positioned to, to be, you know, able to develop uh, diagnostic tests on the go. Of course, these are PCR uh, molecular tests, but then you have the rapid antigen tests as well. So, and in terms of their rollout and distribution, that will be interesting to see for sure. And I don't know, like I couldn't have imagined that we'd be sitting here like, still in a pandemic talking about another infectious disease and, you know, talking about other tests and, uh, you know, it's just, um, I don't know, it's, it's a bit exhausting, but at least um, it seems that this is not as, um, it's not a public health emergency yet. And hopefully, fingers crossed, it won't become one. <laughs> yeah, um, reading the news just like that came out a few days ago, I, I did... Um, according to an article, they did say that Europe is the center of a global outbreak of this monkeypox virus because apparently there's 90% of confirmed monkeypox cases reporting there, according to the WHO. So I didn't know that Europe was like where a majority of cases are happening. And I wonder if, you know, those tests mm -hmm. are first going to be, for example, given to like the areas where there's a lot of cases. But um, did they say like how the samples are collected or they would be collected um i would think it'd be the same way as for covid because um, it is a molecular pcr test and so they would just collect a sample uh, you know what we don't like for the commercially available tests uh, there's not a lot of information because well there aren't any commercially available tests but yeah there's actually not a lot of information in terms of how testing is done for monkeypox um but um, yeah, from what I've seen, it does seem like it would be like a, a throat or a nasal swab, um, just like with uh, COVID as well. Yeah, but uh, it might be different for different tests. Yeah, or there, there, so, yeah. there probably could be more than one method of sample collection that would work with the PCR. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, like with COVID, you know, we learned a lot during the course of the pandemic that, okay, well, it's, you know, dep depending on where the virus, the, the highest viral load is, you know, found in, let's say the nasal cavity or also in, uh, you know, sort of lower down in the, in the throat. And uh, so, yeah, I think it's just going to be a matter of figuring that out with monkeypox as well. But Vera, yeah, you said that 95% in, in Europe. According it, to the WHO, 90%, 90% of confirmed cases are in Europe. Oh, not okay. 95% of confirmed cases. Okay. Yeah. But um, 
Yeah, it seems to be an epicenter of sorts uh, in Europe. And I think it's in the UK. I think Britain was offering the smallpox vaccine to healthcare workers because, you know, they were concerned about the rapidly increasing cases there. So and also Canada and Montreal, I think that was sort of our epicenter here in in Canada, where like I think handfuls of cases were first found in Montreal. So, uh, yeah, we'll just continue to follow this evolving situation. All right, I'm going to move on to our next story. And um, lo and behold, we're talking about COVID. (laughs) So we always come full circle. So uh, COVID is still not, uh, you know, it's still not left the building. (laughs) And so um, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration actually uh, last week authorized the use of Pfizer and BioNTech as well as Moderna's COVID-19 vaccines for kids as young as six months old. And this was a much-awaited decision for many parents with young children. The amended authorization for the vaccines came after FDA advisors on the FDA's Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, or VERB-PAC, unanimously backed the use of the vaccines in younger age groups. And so in that meeting, the committee members voted unanimously in favor of expanding the authorizations to include children as young as six months old. So the FDA's amendment to Moderna's Emergency Use Authorization, or EUA, includes authorization of the vaccine for individuals six months through to 17 years of age. Previously, the vaccine had been authorized for use in adults 18 years of age and older. Now, Pfizer and BioNTech's revised authorization for their COVID-19 vaccine now includes use in individuals six months through four years of age. And the vaccine actually had been authorized for use in uh, individuals five years of age and older. So in a press announcement that uh, the FDA released, which outlined the amended authorizations, the, um, uh, the agency said that its evaluation and analysis of the safety, effectiveness, and manufacturing data of these vaccines was rigorous and comprehensive, supporting the EUAs. Now, following the FDA's amended authorizations for the vaccines, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, provided its recommendation and guidance for the COVID-19 vaccines for people six months and older, and boosters for everyone five years and older, if eligible. So the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine is actually now administered um, in individuals now authorized um, six months through to four years of age as a primary series of three doses. Um, And if you remember, initially the the vaccine was uh, the primary series of the vaccine was two doses, but that's now been changed to three doses. And the first two doses in this younger age group, um, six months through to four years of age, is given three weeks apart, followed by a third dose administered at least eight weeks after the second dose. Now, the primary series of Moderna's vaccine in people six months to 17 years of age um, is two doses, and that's that hasn't changed um, in this age group or in older age groups as well. Um, and the two doses are administered one month apart. A third primary dose can be given 
um, and that can be given at least one month following a second dose. And that is authorized for individuals in this age group who have certain types of immunocompromise. So the FDA's decision on the amended vaccine authorizations for the pediatric groups are based on effectiveness and safety data that the agency analyzed and evaluated. Moderna's data came from two ongoing randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled trials being conducted in the U.S. and Canada, which includes infants, children, and adolescents. So the analysis um, that the FDA conducted involved a subset of 230 children six months through to 23 months of age um, and the immune response after receiving a two month a two dose sorry primary series of uh, 25 micrograms of the moderna mrna vaccine was evaluated and it was found that uh, the two dose primary series elicited an immune response in this age group that was comparable to the immune response of adults 18 to 25 years of age who received two higher doses of the vaccine um, in a previous study. And similarly, uh, analyzed trial data for the Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA vaccine showed that in a subset of children six months to four years of age who received three doses of the vaccine achieved an immune response that was comparable to older individuals um, 16 to 25 years of age. And in addition, uh, the immune responses after receiving the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines in kids 6 to 11 years old were also comparable to older individuals. Now, with respect to safety, uh, that's uh, kind of been, you know, a concern among some people with mRNA vaccines. Um, the FDA also evaluated safety of both Moderna and Pfizer's vaccine among younger pediatric groups. And for Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine, among about 1,700 children six months through to 23 months of age um, were looked at, and 3,000 children two years to five years of age um, were also uh, assessed who received the vaccine. And the most commonly reported side effects were pain, redness, swelling at the injection site, fever, and swelling tenderness of lymph nodes in the arm or thigh where the injection was administered. Um, in the six months to 23 months age group, 1,100 of the participants were followed for at least two months for safety after uh, receiving the second dose of the vaccine. Pfizer's safety data included about 1,170 participants, six months to 23 months of age who received the vaccine, and 400 of them were followed for safety for at least two months following the third dose. Um, and approximately 1,800 participants two years to four years of age who received the vaccine and, six, um, and 600 of those uh, children were followed for safety for at least two months following the third dose. And again, the you know, most common side effects um, in these pediatric age groups included things like fever, pain, tenderness, and uh, redness and swelling at the injection site, decreased appetite, um, among others. So the uh, risk of myocarditis and pericarditis, which is cardiac inflammation, um, again, the risks remain very low um, associated with the administration of the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. Um, and the risks are actually highest in older male adolescents and particularly uh, have been seen to be higher after the second dose of Moderna's vaccine. 
Now, these um, risks of myocarditis and pericarditis continue to be monitored by the FDA and CDC's safety surveillance systems. Um, no reports of myocarditis or pericarditis um, were seen in the safety data uh, for Pfizer and Moderna's vaccine in the trials. Because once again, it's such a low, low risk that um, you don't tend to see that in just, you know, thousands or even tens of thousands of uh, a group or cohort. So uh, when we start seeing it in real world situations where you have millions of doses being administered, that's when you start seeing um, sort of uh, some cases crop up and the FDA and CDC continue to monitor that. Now, the authorization of the vaccines in younger populations is, um, you know, being met with mixed responses. So while many parents are, you know, breathing sighs of relief, others still remain hesitant. So according to recent polling data from the Kaiser Family Foundation in uh, May, only one in five parents were willing to vaccinate children under the age of five. And about 22% of parents said that the delay in the authorization for um, of the vaccines for kids under five has made them more confident in the vaccine safety for young children, while around 13% said it has made them less confident. Again, this is just polling data. And um, the FDA maintains that it has determined that the known and potential benefits of both the, Moder of both the Moderna and Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 vaccines outweigh the known and potential risks in the pediatric populations authorized for use for each vaccine. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on this. Um, again, as I mentioned, this was a much anticipated authorization um, for uh, these younger pediatric populations of the COVID-19 vaccine. Yeah, I think this authorization for kids six months and older, I think it came 18 months after the authorization for adults. Um, so about over a year and a half, which that's just the way it is, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I... I I do find it interesting how, you know, Moderna for, you know, the, this really young pediatric population is only two shots, but then Pfizer would be three shots. So I wonder if that's like a consideration people would take into account. They know young kids don't like needles. Maybe they're like, oh, mm, Moderna is only two shots, you know. Yeah, that might. Um, I'm not sure if I don't think yeah. people have the choice right now. It's a matter of, again, availability, but that could be a factor. That's actually a really good point. Um, how M Pfizer's uh, primary series is now three doses instead of Moderna's uh, two, which remains as original. But yeah, um, the authorization, yeah, it's uh, it came a year and a half after the initial authorization for adult populations or adult age groups. And so um, that's just a normal part of uh, sort of uh, vaccine authorizations or approvals. First, um, in terms of clinical trial data, the trials are first conducted in normal, healthy adult populations. And then once they once they say the safety and effectiveness has been established in that age group, then they start going to younger pediatric age groups. Um, and so that's why it's taken this long. And, you know, it's interesting to see uh, polling data where 
um, you know, some parents, the longer wait time um, boosted their confidence in the vaccines. But then for some parents, it's like, oh, well, why did this take so long? You know, that kind of increased their skepticism of the the vaccines for younger kids. So it's interesting to see parents' attitudes towards uh, this authorization. Yeah, maybe they just aren't aware. And, you know, many people in the general public wouldn't know that for most yeah. drugs, the pediatric population, the yep. authorization comes much uh, much later than the authorization or the approval yeah, for adults. Right. Because a drug or vaccine is just trialed later, right? Um, after it's been established in older populations. So that's the thing. You know, it's, it's kind of unfortunate, but... Um, yeah, the education component is really key in terms of like, how are clinical trials conducted? And, you know, all of that information is not readily available to the general public. And it's, um, I wonder if it's high time that like, it should be like, it's sort of like, you don't want to bombard people with too much information, but um, it, it, it is important for, for things like this, for sure. All right, that's the end of this episode of the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you liked today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you next week. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the X Talks Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find X Talks on social media. Email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalks.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.